Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be exploring the Boston Marathon bomber's death sentence being overturned by the Court of Appeals, an update on the Michigan teen jailed for not doing her homework, and clarifying some misconceptions out there about phantom warrants in Columbus, Ohio. In segment two, as promised, we'll be unpacking the phrase probable cause. What is this standard? How is it used in the law? And how is that standard applied in the field? To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple's podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and follow us on facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. You can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at T-L-O-B-J. If there's a topic that you want us to cover, let us know in the comments down below, and we'll make sure to add that to our list of topics for future episodes. Finally, look to tlobj.com and all of our social media outlets for more information about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that a federal appeals court overturned the death sentence of Zokar Sarnev, the man convicted in the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing? Wow. Yes, I did, Brian. And, you know, I have to say that this particular topic is very near and dear to my heart. I, I used to live in the Fenway area for many, many years, and I would walk down to that finish line and watch the racers finish every single year. And, you know, I was not there that year. I had since moved out to the suburbs, but, you know, I really feel for the people that were down there and, um, you know, had to suffer from this incident and you know just talking about this particular situation i mean does this mean that the man is not guilty of the bombing is that what they're saying or is there something else sarnev is is not going to have his conviction overturned vacated or otherwise modified this is simply related to the death sentence that was imposed after his conviction What's going to happen is the case will be sent back to the United States District Court for a new sentencing hearing. The Court of Appeals was persuaded and convinced that the jurors uh, were biased against Sarnev based on postings that they made on their social media during the trial and penalty phase of the trial. So why does he get a trial for sentencing? When the United States Supreme Court made the death penalty illegal in the late 70s, states and the federal government rewrote their capital punishment laws and capital punishment criminal procedure rules. What they did in that process is they separated the guilt from the penalty phase in a death penalty case. So now all death penalty cases, whether at the state or the federal level, is, are run in two separate phases. First, there's a trial on whether the accused is guilty or not guilty of the crime which they are accused. Second, if the accused is found guilty, then there is a second phase to the trial called the penalty phase. And at that point, the government is presenting evidence of uh, aggravating circumstances. Uh, the death penalty can't be imposed just for your standard murder. There has to be something egregious or special about it to make it death eligible, according to the United States Supreme Court. 
So in that second phase of the trial, the government is presenting that evidence as to why this particular crime is so unique that it deserves the death penalty. And of course, the defense is presenting evidence in mitigation, evidence that tends to support a sentence of life or, or less than a death sentence. Ultimately, the jury will make a recommendation to the judge and the judge imposes the sentence. So the jury will either recommend death, life without the possibility of parole, life with the possibility of parole, or a particular term of years. Now, while the judge may choose to give life after the jury recommends death, the judge cannot impose death after the jury recommends life. Wow, that is so interesting. I mean, have there been a lot of cases where the death penalty is overturned like this? This is one of the strongest arguments that people who are opposed to the death penalty make. And they make the argument that imposing a death sentence is so expensive, precisely for the reason that you bring up. So many of these convictions are overturned because procedure isn't followed properly. Um, death is an irreversible sentence. Once that sentence is imposed on a person, you can't take it back because you got it wrong. So the courts impose very strict standards on the application of the rules of procedure, the rules of evidence, the rules governing uh, the constitutionality of a conviction. So any violation of those rules can cause a death sentence to be overturned and sent back down to the trial court for a, a complete reboot of the trial from the beginning or a redo of the death, the penalty stage. So the expense involved in getting this right is one of the strongest arguments against keeping the death penalty around at all. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it is terrible when somebody actually dies and then they find out later that they didn't do it. You can't take that back and their families suffer, they suffer and um, you know, you're really just, you're missing a life of possibilities in that case. So have you ever seen a situation where you know, the death penalty is overturned but then the court of appeals actually releases the person convicted? Case like Sarnev's, no. Um, there have been death sentences overturned on appeal or through post-conviction processes. In fact, um, the, the Innocence Project has a running tally, and they are well over 400 individuals who've been exonerated from death sentences. And those exonerations aren't people who are getting out on a legal or procedural technicality. Those are people that the Innocence Project works with only because they have claims of actual innocence. They did not commit the crime that they are now sentenced to death for having been committed. So while those individuals can be released from custody after proving their innocence, a person like Sarnev will not be released from custody. He will still be a, a convicted murderer, a convicted terrorist, and he will remain in custody uh, until he completes whatever his sentence is. Um, and that sentence will be imposed after uh, a new sentencing phase in his, in his case. Wow, well, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens and I hope that we'll be back here talking about that as, as soon as we know. 
Yes, absolutely. Speaking of appellate court decisions, Erica, we were thrilled to learn that the Michigan teen jailed for missing her homework assignments was granted an expedited appeal and immediately released while that appeal is pending. This is an excellent example of how the Court of Appeals having an immediate impact on the interests of justice. Now, it's not a guarantee that she won't be ultimately returned to custody, but it feels likely that she'll be able to remain out because the prosecutor's office was against her detention to begin with. Now, this appeal will proceed on a, an accelerated calendar because of the, the fact that this is impacting a teenager because it's impacting a person being incarcerated. So that means that it'll be put at the top of the list of all of the cases in that court and there will be no extensions granted to make sure that the matter is heard and resolved very quickly. So Brian, this is so interesting and exciting. I, I don't know if you see something like this overturned very often. I mean, is it because I mean, the judge, like you said before, she doubled down on, you know, talking about how this woman, this, this child deserved it. She was not going to release her. She was adamant about it. And now it turns out she's being released. So what were the factors involved, do you think, that, that helped that decision uh, sway in the other direction? So I think there were a variety of factors that pushed the, actually the prosecutor's office to make this request from the Court of Appeals. First, I think the, the ongoing pandemic is a significant factor in the decision to get this, this young lady released. Second, I think there's progress that she has demonstrated and made over the course of her incarceration. She is in a juvenile detention facility, so this isn't exactly like an adult prison or an adult jail. Um, so she is getting some education, she's getting some classes, a higher, to higher degree than an adult would in, in a similar situation. Third, um, I think the fact that the school year is coming up and going to start here soon is a significant factor in pushing for her release immediately. Last and not least, uh, I think there's a, a community push to send a message to this judge that she needs to be more circumspect in deciding which children she sends to detention centers. I mean, remember that this all comes back to the young lady um, missing some homework assignments and uh, missing some Zoom classes. And the reality is that had her defense attorney um, gotten, you know, gotten the witnesses together in time, uh, the teacher would have testified at her, pro her probation hearing that she was one of many students in the class that was struggling with uh, online schooling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And not to mention that she didn't really have help. I mean, I know when my child was doing homeschooling, um, I was the only parent for quite a while doing all of the assignments. And had I not done that, uh, she's seven, so <laughs> her attention span is not the best. Um, had I not been there to help her through and keep her focused, um, you know, she probably wouldn't have graduated first grade. So um, I'm glad that they, they made this decision and that this young lady gets a chance to catch up and hopefully push forward with success. Absolutely. So Erica, did you also see that Columbus has been a buzz with rumors 
of police using phantom warrants to arrest protesters. I can't believe it. I mean, let's define what a phantom warrant is and then go from there because it sounds very serious and it sounds like it's being used on the wrong people. Am I right? I, I think you're right. It is, it is serious and there there is some indication that it's been it's being used for nefarious purposes. Uh, a phantom warrant is a tool used by the police and prosecutors. Um, it, it's a bit of a misnomer. The the actual term is a, is a warrant under seal, and it's most commonly used in situations where police and prosecutors are concerned that evidence is going to be destroyed if the person who is the target of the warrant finds out that the warrant is in existence. So you think about situations like uh, drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, drug manufacturing, internet pornography, um, internet child pornography rings, and the investigations of those entities. It's, you know, we, we've all seen the, uh, we've all seen Goodfellas where uh, they're in the bathroom, you know, flushing the cocaine down the toilet as quickly as possible. So this is why we have, they're really called secret warrants or sealed warrants. Uh, and the purpose for that is to prevent evidence from being destroyed. Now, the public has brought this or the media has brought this to the public's attention because what it seems like now is that these warrants are being issued for protesters who have engaged in relatively minor offenses and offenses that uh, don't have the possibility of uh, concealment or destruction of evidence. So, you know, the things like, you know, engaging in an unlawful assembly, disorderly conduct, so that the police have a tool where they can just snatch and grab people out of the protests and suppress First Amendment rights. So why are people suspicious of the use of these warrants right now? So a warrant for arrest would typically only issue for a serious felony, occasionally a high degree misdemeanor. Otherwise, an accused is typically issued a summons, and this is even pre-pandemic. Typically, the accused is issued a summons and given the opportunity to voluntarily appear before the court to answer the charges. Now, the warrant eliminates the exercise of discretion by making the accused subject to arrest at any time in any place. Now, some people see this as an intentional effort by police and prosecutors to stymie protesters' First Amendment rights. Now, while officers assert that this is a lawful tool that they are going to use to maintain order and public safety, the application in this particular context is very suspicious. We would encourage anybody who's engaged in ongoing protests reach out to a lawyer and have a lawyer on call before you go to the protests and make sure that you have the ability to reach out to your lawyer and notify your lawyer if you are arrested during a protest. A lawyer has special privileges as an officer of the court to help you get bond set faster, to get you into court faster, to get you out of jail faster. Well, it sounds like a good idea for people to have your number on hand, if it happens locally, that is. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that you're updating us on this. It seems like uh, the situation is going from bad to worse for these protesters that are just trying to make a change for the better. 
it does. It, it seems like the, the whole purpose of the protests is uh, the message that they're trying to send is the, the government has become excessively oppressive. And the government's response has been, oh, you haven't seen oppression yet. We'll show you what oppression is really about. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. And at some point, somebody's going to have to back down from this. I think that that is not going to happen until well after the November 4th election. Erica, our featured topic this week is probable cause, what the standard is, um, and how it's applied in the field. Um, probable cause is a legal phrase that's thrown around all the time. Uh, when you talk about arrests, when you talk about searches, probable cause is the standard. But what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, you hear this, I think you hear this all the time on the news, you hear it in movies. Um, I, I'd love to know what the standard is and where did it come from? The, the definition of probable cause is evidence that would lead a reasonable person to believe the crime is being committed, had been committed, or is about to be committed. And that crime is about to be committed by a particular individual or a particular location holds evidence of that crime, if we're talking about a search. Probable cause is what makes a search reasonable under the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution and therefore permissible. Because remember, the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. It doesn't prohibit all searches and seizures, just unreasonable ones. And what the courts have said is that if there is probable cause, to support a search or seizure of a person, arrest, then that seizure is reasonable, that search is reasonable. Maryland versus Pringle is a 2003 case by the United States Supreme, that was decided by the United States Supreme Court. And it really sets the modern standard for what probable cause is and what, what the standard is. Now, what the court said in that is that police officers have to have a good faith belief that a crime has been committed and that the individual under arrest committed the crime. In that particular case, an officer approached a car with multiple occupants in which marijuana was discovered. Now, even though the, the police officer did not have evidence that any one particular occupant was responsible for the pot, probable cause existed to believe all of them did because co-occupants of a vehicle are often engaged in a common enterprise. And all three denied knowing anything about the marijuana that was found in the car. This is key to remember, Erica, when you're with other people. Remember that the people that you bring into your car and the people who you consort with in public um, can be, uh, their reputations and their behaviors can be placed upon you, even without your knowledge. Uh, kind of the old phrase, if you lay down with dogs, you might get fleas. Wow. Y you know what? That is so true. And I even heard some interesting cases a while back about Uber drivers and the either the Uber driver having something they shouldn't have or the, um, or the person that hired them. So it's just, you really, it doesn't really matter what the situation is, whether you know them very well or not, you should be careful who you get in a car with or who you let in your car for sure. 
So what's the difference between probable cause and reasonable suspicion? The, both standards have to do with, uh, with a police officer's impression of a situation, his opinion as to what's going on in a, in a particular situation. And the two terms have different consequences on a person's rights, the protocols and procedures a police officer can use, and what the ultimate outcome of the situation might be. Um, a factual in the field scenario, as, as well as in the courtroom. A reasonable suspicion is a step lower than probable cause. It, its standard is defined as a, a crime may have been committed. So we're here talking about the difference between may have, might have, and likely has, or likely is to occur. The Supreme Court of the United States created the reasonable suspicious standard, reasonable suspicion standard rather, in the landmark case of Terry versus Ohio when it ruled that the Fourth Amendment prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures is not violated when a police officer stops a suspect on the street and frisks him or her, even though they don't have probable cause to arrest. So long as the police officer has reasonable suspicion that the person has committed, is committing, or is about to commit a crime. It doesn't allow for the removal of items from that person unless they are clearly contraband. It doesn't allow for the arrest and seizure and removal of that person to a police station because it's not probable cause, but it does allow police to frisk, stop, and question individuals um, if they believe that person may be armed and presently dangerous. So, in the news, I, I feel like New York City has made this phrase stop and frisk popular. Is that where it comes from? I would say that New York City, Erica, has made stop and frisk unpopular uh, because they've abused that phrase and abused that privilege for decades. But I understand what you're going for here. You know, this is exactly what uh, the case law carved out as a protection for police officers by allowing them to stop somebody and conduct a quick surface check of their person for weapons um, and contraband. What police have done, of course, is they've taken this tool that is reasonable and justified in many situations, and they've expanded it and stretched it out like taffy on a wheel. They've, they've used it now to say basically any little lump, any bump, any, anything that they feel on your person while they're searching you is immediately apparently contraband. And so they've, they've abused that privilege. They've also abused the privilege by saying things like, well, if you're black and you're walking down the street, you must be up to something illegal because black people always are up to something illegal according to police officers. And so they use that as reasonable suspicion to stop and frisk um, African-Americans uh, just based on a hunch. And reasonable suspicion must be based on specific and articulable facts, not just a hunch. In practice, however, what we see is that officers make up, fabricate, or um, you know, use very tenuous articulable facts to support uh, their implicit and explicit racist attitudes and, and behaviors 
And this is most prevalently harmful to black Americans in particular, but all Americans in general, because if police are allowed to stretch the law to their benefit in one area and they're not put back in check, uh, our freedoms and our rights across the board are reduced and we are not living up to the standard that the American ideal truly is. So who decides on what is or isn't probable cause? In the immediate in the field context, such as a roadside stop or a 911 response, the police officer on the scene makes the decision as to whether he believes there's probable cause to arrest or engage in a search, um, given the facts collected during the course of his or her investigation. In the context of a search warrant, a magistrate or a judge reviews an affidavit and any testimony provided by a police officer who's asking for a warrant and asking for permission to search a location or arrest a person. After a case is charged, a defendant can challenge the officer's decision in the field and can challenge the issuance of a search warrant through a process called a motion to suppress evidence. And in that case, the trial judge will look back at the situation as the officer knew it at the time and decide whether the officer made the correct or incorrect decision as to whether there was probable cause to search or arrest. The consequence, if the officer is wrong, if the officer says to himself or herself, I do have probable cause, and the officer is wrong about that, is the application of the exclusionary rule, meaning uh, the evidence will be thrown out and not be allowed to be used as a punishment for violating the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Wow. I mean, it seems like probable cause is amorphous and dependent on, on the individual law enforcement officer. So what can be done to make this process more fair? So it goes back to exactly what the protests have been pushing for the last several months and honestly for years. Licensing and stricter training measures to ensure that police officers are trained on what the appropriate standard is when deciding probable cause, how to protect people's rights under the Constitution, and how to make honest and accurate decisions considering the totality of circumstances. Sadly, Ohio appellate courts have already found things like race to be a legitimate factor to consider in the determination of reasonable suspicion or probable cause. My office handled an appeal several years ago where a detective's sole reason for engaging in a search, for pulling over a taxi, was that there was a black man in a taxi in his town. And he stated that very clearly in his police report. He doubled down on that testimony in court. Um, and the Court of Appeals said it was, it was odd for there to be a taxi in this small town in rural Ohio, and it was odd that there was a black man in that taxi. And they, they said, this is sufficient to support a determination of probable cause. I was aghast by that decision. Um, and unfortunately, the Court of Appeals uh, ruled in favor of the officer and said that he did have probable cause. What I think is critically important, in addition to the people pushing for systemic change, is that people also need to hire defense attorneys who are ready, willing, and able to challenge the methods used by police officers um, that they use to claw back 
um, their authoritarian power. And we as defense attorneys need to use and enforce the exclusionary rule. And we're going to talk about that, the exclusionary rule in particular, in next week's episode. Lastly, and most importantly, people need to push for public policy that requires body cams on all police officers, dash cameras in every cruiser, to make sure that police officer interactions with civilians are recorded. And it, limit, it, it limits the ability for police officers to engage in what we call test lying the phenomenon of police officers getting on the stand and telling a misconstruction or honestly dishonest version of what happened out in the field um, rather than uh, the truth that is supported by the video recorded evidence that we find all the time. I agree with you. And I feel like most of these situations have come to light through just an average citizen using their cell phones to record things. So what would happen if everything was officially recorded from the police officers' body cams and from their cars and you know that those recordings just don't get shut off and evidence lost and that sort of thing when it's you know not it doesn't seem to go the the police officer's way. So I mean I I think that more and more we're going to see that the playing field will be even. Absolutely. You as somebody who's um, on that threshold between millennial and Gen Xer, I have experienced firsthand the transition from an analog to a digital internet-based world. Likewise, I came of age as an attorney in a transition between a time when there was no body-worn cameras, uh, there was only very limited use of cruiser video, to an age today where we see more and more police departments having body-worn cameras and the police's manipulation of those cameras. Uh, I have seen time and time again police officers turning off their body cameras when they go to speak with my client, turning off their body cameras when they go to speak with witnesses, turning off and on their body cameras and the microphones on their body cameras during the entirety of an interaction and an investigation. Pushing for standardized procedures, pushing for codified laws on how body cameras are supposed to be used and the availability of the footage, both video and audio from those uh, those devices is the next stage of advocacy and is a fundamental plank in the police reform platform. Erica, I want to thank you for joining me today and, and every week to become more informed about how the government is uh, reaching, overreaching through the abuse of the idea of probable cause, um, holding police and government officials accountable for their misbehavior, and everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, check out TLOBJ.com. Make sure to find us on social media. You can find us on facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at TLOBJ, and on a variety of social media platforms using the hashtags no walk, no talk, and no blow. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in the news regarding civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as a discussion of the prevalence and prevention of police officers testifying in court. 
Erica, my grandfather always said when we parted ways to don't do anything I wouldn't do. And today to my friends and family, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended.